following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. My name is Matt Perez. My name is Satchel Drakes. And this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. Hey, Matt. How's it going? I'm doing all right. I've been thinking about, well, I've been thinking about video games, um, which is apropos, Mm -hmm. but also I've been thinking about, it's been about eight years now. We're kind of creeping up on a decade since we kind of had uh, this advent of, uh, I guess, commercialized like indie games. And I've been thinking back on sort of the history of journalism since then, because there were a lot of changes. There were a lot of strides um, where what I think when Braid first came out, people were calling it an art game. Mm. I remember that. And there was a whole conversation, a whole like argument around, um, are video games art? Like that was a thing for like, the, oh, for, like so long. maybe like three years, like three, four years. Yeah. And everyone got really mad at Roger Ebert. Uh, yeah. And it was, it was such a crazy, it was a cool time because people were realizing, whoa, I guess this thing is what it's always been. There were some people who were like, duh. I think we're all kind of like, duh now. But it's interesting because for the first time, you found a lot of people from press to enthusiast press, like YouTubers and the like, um, comparing games, specific games, and also video games in general to other creative mediums. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't sort of like, you know, you didn't categorize it in your mind with like, oh yeah, it's that thing that I do to waste time. It's like Pac-Man, it's points. But instead it was like, okay, so this is bringing the same things to the table as other things. What about it is newer? What about it is interesting? What about it is different? That's what's been on my mind. (laughs) That's nice. No, I get... (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be right back after this quick break. Thank you to Veridesk and Rocket Mortgage for their support of our show, Overworld. More about those companies later in the show. No, I totally get that because, I mean, I love doing that where I play a game and, you know, um, another, you know, something outside of games pops in my mind of like, this feels like this. It's like dealing with the same themes or it's using sometimes the same style or technique that maybe they adopted from you know, a novel or a film or something. And it's funny, like, I think uh, everyone tends to, if they're going to compare games to anything, it'll be film. I think that's why, like, yes, you have, Yes, I like, do that a lot. Yeah, it's always... So it's, I wonder if it's just because I'm a film guy, but in general, yeah. Yeah, and um, there's definitely, it, it seems, like, obvious, right, that films and games would be, you know, the closest together, but maybe it's not because there's other games where... You know, a novel might pop in my mind or, you know, just a general scent, like a philosophy or like something, you know, so, like some type of speech or something pops in my mind. And I don't yeah. know. Why do you think people jump immediately to um, comparing to film and not maybe something else? I think, well, at first I totally relate to that. Um, and I don't talk about it enough. Like when I was younger, uh, Chrono Cross was my favorite it was just my favorite video game in the world ever. Mm, Love the story, choice. the characters, everything. Um, but it's actually based off of uh, another sequel to Chrono Trigger, the sort of legendary Super Nintendo you know, RPG that came out, called Radical Dreamers. And Radical Dreamers was released in Japan only on, I believe, an in-between system between SNES or PlayStation. I could be wrong. Um, but... Uh, nonetheless, it existed, and I definitely played the fan-translated ROMs. Uh, it was text-only. It was a text-based game, and that was my first exposure to the concept of a text-based game. Now we have a couple of them that have come out for iOS, like even on the Apple Watch, because, you know, you just need to read. Um, and I definitely see there being room for closer comparisons to, like, novels or or other things like that. I think the reason there's a comparison to film is because it's a quick accessible way to talk about it, it's very easy to refer to films as like video games minus interactivity it feels like there's really one yeah. spoke that's gone but 
outside of video games, film is kind of like that medium where it's combining a bunch of things that we love. It's combining sound design and music and visual and that's true and story. Yeah. And then oftentimes there was definitely like a renaissance in games around when the PS2 came out and you know, like I mean, maybe maybe even just PlayStation One, but I, I want to say like yeah, probably PlayStation One because you had Metal Gear Solid, the Final Fantasies, uh, where there was this. This the small renaissance in hey it's more legitimate if it mirrors a cinematic experience. Mm. So like Kojima was like obsessed with that, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. using cutscenes in Final Fantasy like that was a big thing, and it started bleeding into other games. I totally saw how there was a way in which video games kind of hoisted up uh, their legitimacy by playing to the same kind of tune that a lot of uh, films did. Yeah, it's crazy too because you think of the best, or I guess maybe the like movie-based games are always like that kind of joke, you know? Where yeah, oh yes, that's so true. (laughs) Yeah, and and then obviously films based on games did not work out as well either. There's a new Tomb Raider trailer out. I'm like, okay, this is gonna be another one. Like. Yeah, I Everyone saw was that banking today. Banking on Assassin's Creed working out, I'm like, no. It's not. I mean, at, at this point, it's got to be perfect. Like, it's it's a it's a film about a game that's built like a film. <laughs> it just for a game yeah. that's built like a like it's a whole. I mean, but then again, we have Max Payne, right? Where they literally handed it to them. <laughs> like Max Payne it's, yeah. is a video game that is based on like film noir. Like, mm-hmm. it's based on Detective Gumshoe movies, and somehow they messed up the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So maybe... I yeah, there must be... I, I, I guess it's probably just, like, the slices of... Like, as where film would cut away a lot, like, obviously they're very edited. Um, uh, and, yeah. and, and, you know, when telling a story, it's cutting out all the fat and everything, for the most part. Whereas games, it's like... You know, if you're playing something like Grand Theft Auto, which is very much, you know, loves, you know, doing homages to Godfather and stuff, like, you still have to get in a car and drive a few miles and listen to the radio station, and that's, like, the experience for that game for a while. And to, like, yeah. translate that, it's, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how, like, a film would work, you know? Right. Right. This, totally this is, like, with lock you. with Tom Hardy. But that's why, like, um, I kind of... <laughs> You look at um, games that are uh, based on novels, like Metro and Witcher, and they're pretty successful. Uh, they do all right for themselves. And I think mm-hmm. it, it's because like uh, novels kind of allow you to... Um, well, you know, as in the author for a novel is allowed to meander a little bit and describe a, a scene and, you know, breathe in the world and go off on little tangents and stuff. And you kind of can get in the character's head as well, which is very much, I don't know. All those things make me think of if I was playing like Final Fantasy 10 and like a good portions of that game is just like me walking around this cool scenery and checking it out and like inspecting it and reading about like the history, like in an adventure game, like you inspect everything, like you inspect the rock and you get a response and right. That, right. There's uh, I think that, I it's I guess it, it might be that like those in between moments that make me think of uh how those two things align and how something like The Witcher can like successfully be adapted more probably more easily than it could be like a film would be adapted to a game. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense actually. Uh I love that. I and I love I don't know. It's definitely a big thing for me. Like having and amplifying those moments in between is something that's like super duper important and so relevant to narrative. And it is cool seeing how maybe other mediums other than film don't necessarily do that better, but do that in a way that maybe different games lift from. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I mean, I've never really, I've never really thought about comparing games to theater and I don't really see that happening like on, I don't know, in the YouTube space or like on Twitter and the like, and there's a lot of stuff there that's different from films like control over environment and different things that you can sort of contrive. Like there are certain expectations of bombastic moments and maybe like more subdued, realistic moments. And, 
um, I, I wonder what it would be like to sort of uh, explore that a bit more. Yeah. Well, actually, what we'll do is talk to the creators of Kentucky Route Zero, which is a super cool, magical, realist indie adventure game uh, that really takes uh, influence from things like stage plays and the like. Let's do it. I'm excited. But first, a quick break. With a new year upon us, lots of us are at least thinking about ways in which we can be happier and healthier. Maybe we'll take in some yoga, cook up better dinners, or perhaps try a standing desk, like Veradesk. Veradesk turns your desk into a standing desk, so you're more active than sitting all day. Standing more and sitting less can lead to more energy, less back pain, and more productivity. Check out Veradesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping both ways. See it for yourself at veradesk.com. That's V-A-R-I desk.com. So we're back with Jake Elliott, Tomas Kamensky, and Ben Babbitt, who are the designers behind Kentucky Route Zero. Thanks for uh, joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Great. So, um, Tomas, can you uh, describe uh, the game for uh, those unfamiliar with it? Maybe Jake can answer that question. Definitely. He's, he's the best at summarizing. The- <laughs> sure. He's the writer after all. Sure. Yeah, it's, a, it's so we call it a magical realist adventure game. Um, so it's a it's kind of feels a little bit like a point-and-click adventure game, but it's not about really puzzles or, or any other kind of skill-based um, interactions. And it's, it's more about like a story and tone and atmosphere and characterization. And um, it's a game set in Kentucky on the real highways of Kentucky and also in uh, Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, which is this super large cave system here in, in the middle of the state. Okay. And it kind of blends the kind of real mundane with uh, sort of... Uh, magical event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the the game, like the world itself, kind of breathes, and I can really like invest in the setting itself. Um, you know, Jake, was that something you had in mind when creating the game? Just letting players take their time in the world and like really, you know, uh, be able to inspect the setting itself. Yeah, we. Yeah, it's definitely a slow paced game, um, and that's that's something we sort of. Well, you know, we always kind of wanted to make it a non-violent game. That's that's kind of what we what we the kind of games that we want to work on are, are like non-violent games. So um, when we started thinking about what what other types of uh, experiences can we bring or offer to a player aside from sort of exhilarating, uh, you know, uh, full uh, violent scenarios, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this this sort of contemplative uh, slow is something that we settled on. And then, and it's also present in a lot of the work that we close. I know Tomas is a, uh, a student of slow cinema, uh, a lot of filmmakers who, who, uh, work, work at very slow paces, in an observational frame and, and with a lot of patience. So it's something that we're, we're, we're drawing on in, in the, in the work that we're kind of reflecting. Yeah. Can you describe like Tomas, like with the, with the art and being able to like inspect what's in the frame and everything. Can you like describe that a little bit? Um, I, at the time when we were before we had released Act One, we went through various iterations, I guess, of, of gameplay and environment design. Um, and it was not only Jake brought up like observational cinema, but that that was also that was one of the few things we were looking at simultaneously. We were also like looking at theatrical design because um, we had originally, I mean, we had originally thought about presenting the dialogue in, in a certain tr- certain treatment that's similar to uh, like a stage play so that the, the kernel is already there for that and then but in terms of the environment design and art and stuff like that we actually started with something more like Metroid or Castlevania environment like environment design wise so that we found out didn't really work very well with the subject matter so, I mean, at the same time, we were doing all this research about um, about theatrical uh, productions and stuff like that, specifically Death of a Salesman is one that we looked at. Um, and it was, it was a f- film with Dustin Hoffman, I believe. Yeah. Um, I forget the director. Jake, do you remember the director for that? Yeah, Volker Schlondorf. Right. And, uh, but at the same time, yeah, we were looking at that, and uh, and I guess with observational cinema, as Jake pointed out, is very like slow, 
sort of meditative frame framing and stuff like that. So that that we sort of transcribed that into you know going going from a more conventional uh, Castlevania or Metroid sort of setup where you're like traveling through a lot of scenery and platforming and stuff like that. Uh, we, we sort of started condensing uh, all all these uh, naturalist ideas for naturalistic environments, like an actual cave system into a more sort of abstract uh, surrealist uh, representation that's more like a, a set uh, in a stage play where a lot of the components are just sort of like layered on top of each other uh, and it's yeah it's very the density is very different there's not and there's not a lot of uh, broad movement the spaces are designed for actors you know in our case NPCs or the player character but you know Using using the terminology of theater, right? And you'd have actors sort of having this rhythmic, dynamic space, uh, contained space on the on the stage that they'd be able to move around in. So that sort of that sort of like uh, led the design, the the last design push before we actually released the first episode of the game. That's re- that's really really cool. I, I think it's really cool that you guys mention uh, slow cinema. It, it kind of has me thinking a little bit about. I don't know if I've mentioned this on on another episode, but like the advent of mumblecore films, where it's not necessarily about this kind of bombastic payoff for a grand narrative of a story, but the value is kind of found in like relationships or things that are happening in each moment, from moment to moment. I was getting a little bit of that vibe as I was playing through, and I don't know if that was like intent or just my interpretation. But I'm curious to know: was that sort of like the goal to kind of achieve? You know, research is a is a large part of like our process. So the the remodeling of an environment space into into something that we then saw, you know, would would work for us in theater and in slow cinema. I mean, I don't know else else, else how to put it other than there's just sort of like going back and forth between those two processes. I don't know. Jake, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think you're right. It's a yeah. It was it was really a discovery. Yeah, from yeah, going like you described. Yeah, this this research process, and then kind of looking at you know like well, so we we we've had this idea about American tragic theater, like like you mentioned early on, where we're like the dialogue's going to look like it's a trans, you know, like it's a a script, a a play script, and um and and you know we're thinking. So let's read a bunch of plays and watch a bunch of plays and, and see, you know, since we have this one idea, see like what else is going to kind of fit into it. And then when we started implementing stuff and finding that we were um, kind of more going to end up more focused on these like human scale moments, like there was this really early prototype uh, that we made that was just about, we did it for a show um, at the Kickstarter offices. This was like several years ago. And it was it was like a show of, of works in progress of games that were, had been funded through Kickstarter. So we, we made this kind of one-off prototype that really only showed there that was just this one conversation. Um, and kind of, yeah, through that, that was really theatrical. Like the lighting looked very artificial and it was it really looked like you're watching a, a stage play. Um, and we found in that this kind of like intimacy and like sort of human scale, um, like interaction and flow that that really worked for us. So yeah, I think I, you know I, mumblecore specifically. I, I I mean I think is a I I love that genre of films and stuff. But there's there's some pretty important to me differences between um, our work and and that work. But um, but yeah, I love the focus on like human scale drama in that and and the sort of uh, winding path that a lot of those stories take, you know, they <clears throat> they sort of follow a path more like how a human relationship follows a path. You can, there's like these kind of unexpected shifts and stuff. It's hard to like see. It's hard to like when you're watching like a mumblecore film to to say, you know, okay, these are the archetypes at play here, and this the prince is going to end up with the princess or whatever. You know, like the way that you have these kind of grand narratives in um, yeah. in, in a lot of other kinds of stories. Uh, so yeah, I would definitely admire that that aspect of that work. Yeah. I, I wasn't expecting uh, such a heavy play of theatrical stuff, but I don't know, I guess hearing you guys unpack that, looking at the game as like a set was something that I, I never even thought about. I, I really love the, I don't know, I guess the sort of Southern Gothic atmosphere of everything. And I, I specifically love, and I guess sort of coming from like a, a visual design background, I, I love the 
idea of, or at least this is how I saw, like, directing focus by the use of, like, shapes and silhouettes for scenery, uh, does that all tie back to sort of this idea of making each screen in Kentucky Route Zero Zero feel like a, like a, like a, a theater set piece in a kind of way? Or am I, am I doing heavy reading there? No, I think that that seems accurate to me. Yeah, the slow cinema stuff is is sort of like a uh, the avenue for that is really the use of the camera, um, and like I would talk a lot about Tarkovsky, although his his settings would either be very like stage like, like in, in domestic indoor settings where he would have all this sort of choreographed um, changes in lighting that would seem this seems so similar to like theatrical design, you know, being like a light designer, like turning on a light in one room and turning it off in another and just like watching light move through a space, like, you know, scripted like that, directing someone's attention. Uh, and then also like just this very like formal formalist use of the camera. It's always, you know, very measured, very slow on rails or something like that. Very uh, architectural um, is another way to sort of, Something that you don't really have that much uh, input, I guess, if you're like designing for a proscenium and you're like sitting in as an audience member looking at a set, you rely more heavily on the jet movements and gestures of characters. And obviously, our characters in the game are very, they just, there's very little motion to them at all. So, uh, what drives a lot of that, uh, drives a lot of the player's attention visually is the stuff like lighting and then the camera motion. Um, cause yeah, we have like no motion capture in the game or whatsoever. It's, and, and there's a lot of reading. So that seems, it seems like at odds, you know, like almost like trying to talk over somebody. I'm curious, um, in regards to like, if you, how you view each, you know, stage or scene, it, like how, how do you go about designing that in regards to like just starting out creating this setting and the mood and the, and the tone and everything? Um, I mean, it's pretty lo-fi. We, I, you know, like this question comes up a lot, like, do you, you know, you know, in a, if sort of from a different trajectory, but like, you know, what's our concept arts, you know, like stage like, and we really don't have concept art in that way, but we do like collect references, reference images and photographs. Uh, so I, I, I do a lot of that and, you know, on a Tumblr, I, um, I just, I just research like, settings you know like from from like we we work from like an outline and we're like okay we know you want to have these particular settings like just like a, a one sentence two sentence descriptor of a place uh and uh so i we you know we have that and then i work from that to sort of start collecting images so oh, some of that is just sort of inspirational uh but often it gets really like detail oriented where I would just collect, I don't know, like 30, 40, 50 photographs of barns. And sometimes I would even like, uh, more or less trace in like blender, you know, like a, a specific piece of architecture or, you know, something like that. So it becomes very sort of, there's a lot of just like references from a- actual places in the world that get peppered in that way. So that's, that's mostly how like, you know, those are mostly like the building blocks of how these spaces are sort of made, right? So we have sort of like, a, for example, when you first see, when you first get into the cave system, we were like thinking about how we're going to show the Route Zero. Um, and we decidedly didn't want to go for like a naturalistic ton, you know, tunnel system, like caves and stalactites and stuff like that. So the first place you see on the Zero is like this uh, ambiguously indoor outdoor space that's the bureau of reclaimed spaces and that's like a like sort of like a bricolage of a couple of different specific architectural buildings um so yeah that's that's like that's just one specific example of how these spaces get crafted how do you uh, i guess jake like um when it comes to interaction and writing um yeah how do you just approach a writing a game like this um and your collaboration with the rest of the team? Um, well, yeah, it's pretty... There are some formal rules, I guess, that we have in place, but it's pretty... Um, <clears throat> we we kind of come up with these 
outlines, uh, like Tomas mentioned, uh, together. Um, so you know, we're all we're all doing this sort of narrative design, broad strokes narrative design as a as a collaboration, and then and then my role is kind of writing the actual dialogue and and prose text um, based on on those conversations. And um, yeah, I, I I look at a lot of dialogue examples like I we mentioned that you know the part of the impetus for for working with uh stage theater as a reference was I, I was just like looking for big corpuses of of um dial examples of dialogue writing so I just read a bunch of plays um and I tried to strike a balance of kind of being realistic and uh um, I don't know what the other side of that equation is, but I try not to. I, I, I guess I try not to get too mired in realism. Like I, I don't want um, the. Uh, I don't want the, all the dialogue to sound totally naturalistic. So try to leave some, some room for, um, you know, alienated language. I guess would be the the term from theater. You know, there's like, the alienation effect in theater where the audience is kind of like aware that what they're looking at is a construct. It's, they're not. They're not totally swept up and uh, immersed in it. Um, so sometimes they you know try to come up with interesting ways for the characters to speak that that might not be um, totally naturalistic. Um, and then we we have so there's a mostly dialogue that's probably most of the writing in the game. And then there are these other um, vignettes that are sort of like mini text adventures, um, most of which you find while you're exploring the highway. Uh, and those are are yeah, just told in third person and and they're just like little self-contained uh, text adventures uh, which I really enjoy writing I, I play a lot of interactive fiction and a lot of like twine games and hypertext games and I grew up reading choose your own adventure books and really loving that form so I, I get a lot out of uh, yeah I'm glad that we were able to fit that into this game it became mm -hmm. a pretty important part of the game that's great yeah so uh, like Beth, what's it like when you complete an act and that's kind of it you don't go back and you move on because it's an episodic game it's a relief <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's good <laughs> do you guys have um backgrounds in other um uh creating other games where you do like from beginning to end you are creating it whereas this it's more it feel like it's more like you'd write a novel where it's like you start from the beginning you get to the end and that's it and you don't you don't go back to the beginning. Uh, Jake might have been put on that. This is my first game, you know, I've worked on. Um, yeah, we, game. yeah, I did a few smaller games before. Well, I, I, yeah, like a, a bunch of flash games that were much smaller in scope. I mean, this is by far the largest project I ever worked on of any kind. But um, and then we also did a uh, this game that was a commission called Neighbor that was for a. Uh, was kind of a self-contained game that we just did in a few months um and yeah it was a pretty different experience i mean making it i mean this the uh, like ben said the episodic nature of this game is is uh it's nice in that you can put some stuff to bed instead of having to uh sort of sit on it like if we had made all of kentucky rod zero before releasing it would have been years you know of having this weight on our shoulders of this game that nobody had played, you know, um, which is, is pretty, it's a pretty real, I mean, it's, it's painful enough to go two years working on something without anybody playing it. It's like, there's some anxiety built into that process. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. It's also hard to, you know, um, put an episode out there cause it would, there would be all sorts of spoilers, obviously. Um, because it's so so heavily narrative that you know it's not sort of like an iterative right. sort of game development process that some other people can adopt, which seems an interesting way to work. But yeah, so we're like mostly in isolation mode. So yeah, when <laughs> when we do get an episode out, it's it's a relief for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just like. One last question, like you guys mentioned that you went, you, you've, you know, have experience in art school and stuff um, with other um, creating other experiences and other mediums. Like what's like the biggest difference between, you know, creating a game, especially the one that you've been working on for years at this point and, you know, uh, and, and other projects you've done in different mediums. 
Well, I guess my background, uh, you know, as a day job, I used to do web development. So uh, that's where I got a lot of my sort of former training with like, you know, software development and then just doing some some very small graphics, sort of non-structured graphics projects. Um, so for me, at least, this feels like a, a continuation of, of like similar crafts that I've been work, you know, doing before. Um, I've never really done any sort of like broad, broad stroke narrative stuff. Definitely, I, I haven't done any writing or prose stuff before. Um, but yeah, I don't know, maybe Jake, you have some insight yeah. on. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely this is the first, the first like big narrative oriented thing that we, Tomas and I worked together for, for a lot of years before we worked on games and, and we made like interactive software art kind of projects, installations and performance kind of stuff that was software driven and, and on the web. And it was, so the, a lot of the tech is the same, but this, yeah, this one has a story. Really the biggest difference though, to me is the, is the size of the audience, like the stuff that we were making before, um, was like not in the mainstream in the way that video games are and you know kentucky red zero is like on digital shelves next to call of duty and stuff like that it's like it's just living in a totally different world that we didn't have access to before working on games so that's very different um yeah to have that that scale of audience ben was a musician Just in terms of the difference between like what I did before and working on this, or yeah, I guess a game and ge- yeah, yeah. I mean, I just had yeah. I mean, I, I had no point of reference really, and I think I have the least kind of familiarity with like the canon or history of video games. Uh, actually, when I started talking to Jake about when Jake started, we started talking about um, me working on Kentucky Route Zero. I kind of didn't even really know that somebody like you know people like us could make a video game i didn't even i didn't know that that was a thing so it was all kind of uh very new and um you know i mean i'm still making music a lot of the time and that's something i i did before and grew up doing and i studied music and i you know had had made a fair amount of music before sorry um before working on kentucky route zero but the process of learning how to make something, you know, for it, for a scene in a game that, that was completely uh, new to me. I have to imagine it feels a little bit like Halloween. Yeah. Trying on different costumes. And also what, what was, what was sound, what was putting together, I guess, like atmosphere and sound design. Like, was that your first time kind of putting that together? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I kind of like, you know, uh, hubristically suggested that I that I start taking over the sound design after after Act One because Jake did the sound design in Act One, um, and that was just uh, yeah that was like a totally new thing I'd never done that before. Had some idea that involved you know like going out and making field recordings and uh, you know had was pretty comfortable editing audio and stuff, but. Um, yeah, I mean, the, since since then, I think things have come a long way, and there's, of course, there's still more to learn. But um, it's kind of a, an entirely different set of skills in a way from making music, which I didn't really expect. Uh, yeah. Well, great. Um, thanks so much for uh, uh, talking to us, you guys. I uh, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, this has been yeah, great. Definitely learned a lot, and thanks for making cool. such uh, such an amazing experience. Such a great story. Thanks for playing. Thanks for checking it out. Take care. Cool. Take care, guys. See ya. See ya. Thanks. Up next, Eric Kane and Paul Tassi talk about virtual reality in 2018 and beyond and why it may not go mainstream for years to come. But first, a quick break. Support for the Forbes Overworld podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. 
Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. Hi, I'm Eric Kane. And I'm Paul Tassi. And today we're going to be talking about virtual reality. Uh, in part because there's not a terribly large amount of news happening. But kind of as we start the new year, I think it's kind of good to take stock of where this kind of supposedly big earth-shattering trend is right now and i would argue it is not exactly earth-shattering but you know still still promising for the future what do you think well it's interesting because vr you know we, we saw a huge you know groundswell of hype and you know billions of dollars spent on this technology and then over the you know the last what two years since the headsets have been coming out there just hasn't been a whole lot of excitement really in the gaming community. I mean, there is a niche for, for VR where there are some people that are just diehards. I see, I see comments in, in, you know, like posts and forums where people just talk about regular 2d gaming as like a dinosaur. But as far as I can tell, <laughs> there's not really any evidence to back that up. Let's, I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, probably the most success, the most successful VR, other than mobile VR, is the the PlayStation virtual reality, and that's that's kind of we still do see a number of games coming out for that. But I find myself not really playing very many of them. I mean, have you? When was the last time you put on a, a VR headset? It has been a, a few months now, to the point where I moved my Oculus Rifts kind of from my office to storage because. <laughs> I was just I, I literally needed the space and I just do not play it anymore. And I guess kind of my central question is after, you know, I was convinced to spend six hundred dollars on a headset, uh I, I just don't know what's going to get me back to VR now where I I played it and it was fine, it was okay. It I enjoyed showing it off to people, which is kind of one of the primary party trick functions of it but when it came down to like what do i really want to be playing in any given day i was never able to move from you know traditional console and pc gaming to be like yes i want to spend all this dedicated time in vr because for me personally it was a kind of too exhausting to uh set up and maintain the setup uh like i'm my wife and i are kind of neat freaks so like every time i I brought up the headset i'd have to like you know, put all the sensors out again and like redo all the wires and all that stuff. And it was, it's a whole process. And then I also just personally found it kind of exhausting where I, you know, I can play any game for probably like four five, six hours if I have to, but VR, like after 45 minutes, like I am out, like I'm not nauseous or anything like, like per se, but it's just, it's such a draining experience for me. Like maybe I just haven't built up my endurance, but t- to me that's been kind of a limiting factor in my enjoyment of it. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what, what you mentioned as a uh, party game function, like that is absolutely where I've used VR the most, you know, have some people over, get out the headset. It's funny to watch people play it. It's funny to, especially with a scary game or something, it's funny to see people's reactions um, and that can be fun. There's some fun games. Um, Super Hot in VR was fun to play, but didn't work as well as the as the 2D version. And uh, and then, like you said, I, I am not necessarily a neat freak, but I just the amount of cables for something like a PSVR, it's just such a hassle. Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe some people can wire that to where it's not such a hassle, but I mean, even just you know. And I used the PSVR more than Oculus, uh, and I got rid of my Vive because it was just way too much setup. And you literally have to set up sensors in your room for the Vive, and it's just too much. Uh, but the, even the PSVR, you know, there's there's a lot of cables and boxes, and you have to have another HDMI cable and another power cable and a, another USB cable, and it just gets it does get 
kind of overwhelming to just have this headset out. Um, and I think for it to be really a great party game thing, it really has to get rid of all those wires. Uh, and, and I don't know. I know that Vive, uh, the HTC Vive is going to have a wireless uh, adapter. But even then, like, I, I still think we're a few years off from having this be an easy thing to get out and play with. And even once it is, I think it's really going to be limited to stuff like party games, games that you can play with a group. Because uh, I just don't – I don't know. It is exhausting to play for very long. You have to pass the headset around or else it's just – I get a headache. I don't get sick either, but I get a headache. Yeah, I can see the headache thing. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the wireless headsets are coming, but man, even then, given my current VR experience, it's like, okay, do I want to put another $600 down for like another <laughs> VR headset Like after what I paid the first time? And I, I feel almost penalized for being an early adopter because yeah. <laughs> I, I think it just – it was such early adoption that I, I just don't think it was ready kind of for what I wanted it to be. And like when I got it, it didn't even have, you know, the hand controllers at first. I was still using like an Xbox controller and if, and you know, the, the visuals are kind of like looking through a a screen door on the rift and like, you know, future models are going to get better and it's going to continually improve. But man, that was a hefty investment for something I did not get a lot out of. And I don't know, the current state of VR to me is, is, is weird, where I do think you have kind of a healthy, dedicated following for it, but I, I absolutely don't think that that's crossed into the mainstream. And it seems to me like you either have people that are really hardcore about VR or people that kind of ignore it completely. And to me, at least from what I see, there isn't that much of a blend of people who kind of balance it all and are playing everything or like have moved exclusively to playing VR. Like, I just don't think that kind of culture is there yet. And to me, what I see, what I see constantly developing, like when I see VR in the news, it's usually something goofy, like some, some silly kind of tech at CES that's using VR or someone playing the LA noir case files in VR and like doing all these goofy, you know, silly things with, with the controls and the hand motions you can do and stuff like that. And like, that's funny, but it just, and even even like you said, scary games and watching people get scared, like it's all kind of this weird kind of meme based, like comedy based, like kind of gimmick. joke experience. Yeah. Like it's gimmicky. Yeah, but <laughs> and it, like and it's, it's, it's good yeah. gimmicky, but it's like expensive gimmicky and <laughs> yes. kind of exhausting gimmicky. And, and I just I have yet to really have an experience that mirrors kind of anything I get from traditional games. And like the, the entire concept is cool, but then. You know, then you have Mark Zuckerberg doing his little VR avatar, like live from a <laughs> country that just was ravaged by a hurricane, and you're like, okay, we still don't really know what to do with this tech at all. <laughs> right. Even the people yeah, well, I, billions of dollars at it. So I think part of it is an an, an input problem, um, and, and by that I mean like when you're playing a game in VR, you have to choose kind of like some games give you options on how you move around, for instance, and either you're going to use like a motion controller where you can point and click and teleport or you use a traditional controller and you move around in the world with a joystick. And both of those systems of movement, although I think especially teleportation, really throw out the immersive quality of VR. So when you picture VR, like you sort of think back to Star Trek or or other sort of science fiction where you're in the game and you're moving around naturally and interacting with the world naturally. But what happens in reality is that it feels even more unnatural than a, t- than a 2D game. Like a, a first-person shooter or a third-person action game or something like that, where you have a lot of control and very precise control over what you do. I mentioned Super Hot earlier, and that's a game where... I don't know, have you played that game? Uh, on console, but not on... Uh, well, it's... Uh, you know, for the listeners that may not have played it, you, you basically... Every, you're, it's a first-person shooter where you are trying to solve a puzzle, basically. And when you're moving, the bad guys are moving. But when you're not moving, they're only moving very slowly. So you have this sort of almost turn-based puzzle to figure out on who to shoot first, where to turn, and you have to do it before the bad guys get to you or shoot you in kind of a bullet time. And, and in VR, it's really cool. Like there's a really – it's really immersive looking around. But it's really hard to aim accurately. It's really hard to pick up things that with a mouse or a controller you could simply grab. And that's just what I find for so many VR games is that just controlling the game 
is much more difficult and and it really kills that immersion that VR is supposed to bring to you. And I don't know how they're going to solve that problem because it feels a lot like the problems that we've had with past motion control systems. I was just going to say that. That sounds exactly like the Wiimote and then Kinect. Right. But the difference being – where I mean the the whole point is like don't design a system that is not actively better than what exists now just because you can. And that's right. that's been why we're still using controllers and a mouse and keyboard for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years because there's just there's nothing but better. And but VR in VR's case, it's an entire industry that's been built around this concept, which is when when I think about VR, I'm not like that optimistic for kind of the near at least the near term future of games. Like it's it's kind of the other applications like viewing live events or like virtual meetings or something like that that don't really rely on that as much that I can see more of the potential there than I can like them cracking this kind of movement thing and you know putting everyone in omnidirectional treadmills, whatever it's gonna be. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of huge investments, uh an omnidirectional treadmill oh, my would favorite, not be cheap. <laughs> my favorite movement hack I've seen was is was in LA Noir where you you can teleport, which is obviously disorienting, but you can also swing your arms like you're walking. So you do this <laughs> Oh and it'll it'll move you forward instead of you just having to use a joystick. So you have this kind of like ministry of silly walks, like <laughs> wow, movement through through the map, which is it's hilarious. Like it's horribly ineffective and in a disaster, but it is again very very meme worthy. So yeah, I'm just not sure how they how they solve the the movement problem in games. You know, it's I just don't see how they can actually create a system where it really feels like you're in this other world uh, without being able to actually control games with just your mind, you know, like if you could just sit there in your headset and think about what you wanted to do. And then that happened in the VR, that would actually be really cool. And you could have amazing experiences that felt very immersive, but as it stands, just having to, I really hate the teleport system, like having to, Point no, and click and, move and that's why, like, even awful stuff that should be cool, like Skyrim VR, is just like, ugh. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I know. It's, I don't know. I'm also just tired of them kind of just trying to adapt games for VR when that is usually a bad idea. Like, Eleanor does it okay, but even that is just like a, you know, hilarious, just disaster most of the time. Well, to be fair, we're speaking about Bethesda and Rockstar right now, two companies known for releasing their games on as many platforms as they humanly possibly can over and over and over and over again before having to release something new. So well, I'm sure we'll have mind-controlled Skyrim in, uh, you know, five or six years. <laughs> yeah, we'll never see another Elder Scrolls game, but Skyrim will be released on every system that ever comes out, ever. Exactly. <laughs> Which is a depressing thought, but... I mean, at least to to uh, Rockstar's credit, there's going to be Red Dead Redemption two soon, and then I suppose maybe we'll get a VR version of that, uh, which will be terrible compared to the, the regular oh, version. That's a, third, be able to that's a third person game. Oh, it's <laughs> going to be so bad if they do that. <laughs> they they may not, but you never know. Like we'll see. They they there are you know there are ga- a lot of games that sort of hamstring that in, um, and then there are a lot of games that that are brand new for VR. I think one of the big hurdles for game developers in 2018 is going to be justifying the cost of development for what is still just a very niche uh, player base. I mean, if you think about the PlayStation 4 has over 70 million units in the wild, right? Mm -hmm. And the PlayStation VR has uh, two or three million? Yeah, I I mean, it may be up a little since the holidays, but that's not, I mean, that's, that's fewer units than in the Wii U, you know, right. <laughs> like it's well, not a really compelling uh, reason to go make a video, a video game. For weirdly, that Sony was like, well, yeah, we actually sold way more PSVRs than we thought. And it's like, well, that was that your bar? That's a weird bar to set. <laughs> like, yes, we have a 1.5% install base. Like, like granted it's new technology, but I mean, yeah, you're right. That's what I've been hearing from, from at least some VR devs where, VR has just not caught on in the mainstream, and as such, like, is it really justifiable to make these games for such a small audience? And I, I think at first, when all these systems just came out and VR was like the thing that was about to blow up, then yeah, sure, like you make that bet. But now, after I don't know, like almost two, two and a half years, whatever it's been, it's 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 a lot riskier of a proposition, and I would not blame you if you just wanted to, you know release a good indie game on Steam or something, you know what I mean, instead of 
going all the way and, and going full VR with it. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the games you play, you can think, oh, this would actually probably be just fine on a monitor or a TV. You know, there's there's not a lot of games that I've seen, other other than some that are just very basic, that really make use of that that VR. Uh, like like on the HTC Vive, there was a game where you could paint all around you in the air. You know, that was pretty neat, like being able to paint these streaks of color and make shapes all around you in the air. I mean, that really was something I can't really picture doing just on a screen, you know. But for the most part, like, you know, music games or adventure games, shooters, like all of those can be done on a screen just as easily. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe maybe VR games need to be more unique and more uniquely VR than what people have been coming up with. It's you know? it's also weird coming at this as a you know traditional core gamer because it's the first kind of move in gaming where in a lot of ways it feels like just several steps backwards where you, you're putting on the VR headset and yes, just being in VR itself is, is an awesome experience and very cool, but like the resolution is lower than what you're used to, frame rate is lower, graphical fidelity is lower, like games are smaller, like games are five percent of the size of you know, there's my siren uh <laughs> me living by a fire station at least there's no more construction we passed that yes that's good <laughs> but um <laughs> it's my my firefighter simulator in vr but no but like the, the games that are being made are just so infinitesimally small and like the coolest stuff is like you said these kind of like more tech demo-y kind of things which are these these pretty you know cool but limited experiences and you know when you when you start to move into franchises you have these weird adaptations like you have Skyrim which is just a hundred times worse in VR than it is yeah. on, on a console even if it's kind of you know cool as a novelty or you have something like that that Batman game where you're doing like Batman detective stuff but it's like one percent of an Arkham game you know what I mean. Right. And until we kind of bridge that gap, I think that's turning a lot of gamers, myself included, off to VR because it's like, well, why am I, you know, fumbling around with this, all this tech and all this stuff when I could just be playing games like I normally do and probably enjoying it more? And that, that to me yeah. has been a big hurdle. I think, and I think some of the more unique games for VR, like uh, Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, have you played that? Yeah, I have. That's a great, that is it's a great game. Yeah, a wonderful game, right? And it's based off the concept of sort of an asymmetric uh, gaming experience, where one player sees one thing, the other player sees something else. And actually, that's something that the Wii U tried to do, uh, that Nintendo tried to do with the Wii U, uh, which is have you know one player have the the small gamepad screen, the other player or players be on the TV. You see a lot of that with VR. It's kind of interesting how uh, alike, in some ways, the two technologies are. <laughs> how did are. the Wii U do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it did wonderful. It was the best-selling console that Nintendo ever had, and that's that's uh, a total lie. That's what I mean, no, though. It, it, it does remind me of kind of the Wii U or their Kinect or something, where there are like a couple experiences that are really awesome and really kind of make mm -hmm. use of the tech and kind of make you think the concept could work, but then there's not enough to build on that. And I, I guess I have faith in VR that there is just so much investment, and then it does it does just ultimately feel kind of so inevitable that someday VR will be a really big thing. Like it may take another 15, 20 years or whatever it is, but I, I do, despite all my naysaying, I do fundamentally believe in VR. It's just the current state of it has been kind of frustrating and irritating and not really like this, other than like the first couple of weeks I was using it, not like this magical leap into the future that we kind yeah. of felt like it was going to be. I was always a little skeptical, I have to say. Like, I just, I don't know. And I, I feel like I'm a little vindicated just because, like, there's been, there just hasn't been much movement in VR in terms of just getting to where we need to be. And I, I mean, you say you have faith in VR because of the inevitability of all this investment. But, I mean, how long will that take? I mean, are we looking Extremely at 2020, long. 2025? I mean, is this going to be oh, like... Oh, no, I said, I'm like 15, 20 years. Like, I, I'm, yeah. I'm not believing that this is like a short turnaround. I... I Based on the current state of it and what it would need to kind of have mainstream adoption and like how much it needs to advance, I would say we're just well up. over a decade away from it being like truly, truly relevant. And I, but all these other tech gurus are saying like, oh, by you know 2019, you know we'll be <laughs> yeah going to virtual restaurants and you know like roller coasters and whatever. It's and that is there's well, no way. Yeah. 
the thing about the tech community, both journalists and, you know, investors and kind of just the evangelists of tech is that they're always full of crap. <laughs> I mean, it really like there's always the promise of the next big thing. There's always this this sort of fervent belief in the power of technology to be transformative and to have these great disruptions. I mean, we saw this with like the Ouya. Remember the Ouya? Oh, I was, my God. I was talking about this the other day, actually. <laughs> It was going to be this transformative disruptor or the steam machines. They were going to come in. And all I could think with these things is what are they disrupting exactly? Like this is not even – this doesn't even make any sense to me. Like we have PCs already. What are the steam machines going to do? We have we have uh, Android. We have smartphones already. What do we need the Ouya for? Like this – you know, pretty soon this stuff's going to be in the TVs and it's just going to be a, a, a fringe benefit, not even the main point of having it. So, So we see this sort of like – the gospel of tech all the time. And I often just roll my eyes at it because frankly, like the fundamentals, at least for video games are good inputs and interesting level design and just the sort of old standbys that we've always, I mean, that's why the switch is a novel console, but the switch is still very basic. It's just a basic console that you can take with you or play at home. That's it's, that's it's one innovation and it's, it's only real innovation. It's very simple. And the rest of the thing, the thing that makes Switch games so good is that they're just well-designed games, you know? Yeah, it, it worked because they pretty much just kept the input the same as it's always been. They just translated yeah. it into mobile. And they've already been making mobile handhelds forever. So it was it was just marrying two things that have worked really well exactly. for a long time. Whereas the Wii and the Wii U were trying to reinvent the wheel with controls. And like though the Switch has kind of waggle-based controls too, like that's... I would say that's probably one of the worst parts of the Switch is the fact that it still feels the need to yeah, make that you they carry that over sometimes. Yeah. But but fundamentally, like the the basics are there. Whereas that's something that VR has still just not figured out outside of like very select games with very specific control schemes using kind of the handheld ones. And until that's fixed, which is not an easy problem to solve, I don't know if that's going to be changing. Yeah, I, I wrote an article a couple of years ago. Um, it was titled something like. Um, Sony's PlayStation 4 winning the console wars despite its more interesting competitors. Uh, and it was basically like, a, and a lot of Sony people, like fanboys were mad at me, even though the article was basically saying the reason that the PlayStation 4 is doing so well is because it didn't bother with a second screen gimmick. It didn't bother with the Kinect. It just brought, you know, a pretty reasonable horsepower and good games. And that's what people are after. And I think that that's the fundamentals that people really are after is just having a, a functioning system with good games on it, at least for the video game industry. That is what people are after. Yeah. The Switch brings that added benefit of being able to be mobile also. Um, but, you know, the Kinect really didn't bring anything to video games. I mean, I don't, and, and... I don't want to say that, like, people should never innovate and, like, never try to change anything. But I think you run into trouble when you start to lean – too heavily on, on gimmicks that are just unproven. Like the Kinect was, I, I can't really even respect Microsoft for trying because they should have gotten kind of the early warning signs from the original Kinect on the 360 that like, this isn't really that <laughs> good. And yeah. they're like, no, the Kinect is amazing. Like we're going to marry the Kinect to the Xbox one and it's going to be great. And like immediately that was a disaster. And yes, that was incredibly foolish. <laughs> I just, like, so like, I, I still want to keep seeing innovation in VR. It's just a matter of, when I'm going to feel kind of comfortable coming back to it and really investing in it again and just how kind of long these growing pains last because this seems like it's going to be a, a very long iterative I, process. You know, what the, you know what Microsoft should have done for the Xbox One is they should have realized that the, the motion control system of the Kinect was not very compelling, but having voice controls for simply navigating the UI and whatnot that could have been built right into the, the Xbox and, and been a pretty uh, – kind of like an Alexa. That you know, would have, I was Google just going to say Home. that would have very much corresponded to the current craze of, of personal yeah. assistance. And, and they I think would I wrote an article. Of- I'm like the Microsoft should ditch Connect but keep Cortana. That's what I said. It was like – that was a yeah, couple see, years ago too. And I'm stealing it from you basically. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of everything first. But yeah, I, I don't know why that couldn't be integrated. I mean they – it's probably too late for the hardware now, but I feel like for the Scorpio, they could have done that if they wanted to, mm-hmm. the One X, but nope. Yeah, because then you'd have, you know, hey, Cortana, and, you know, play 
Pandora or whatever, you know, that would, I, I liked some of the voice controls with the Kinect, just like I like some of the stuff you can do with Alexa or whatever. I still find all and of Cortana, those kind of absurd. Bing me some local restaurants. <laughs> Bing me. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Cortana, play some iTunes and then bring up Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't, I honestly kind of, I have an Alexa mini, but it's, I hardly ever use it. It's more like for the kids to ask silly questions to, I kind of don't understand that whole huge trend, but I can see building that into other technology, like having that built into your TV, having that built into your Xbox, how that's useful. Yeah. Um, I don't quite understand it as stand, you know, standalone items. Um, but I suppose someday in the future, long in the future, we'll have a PlayStation VR, that's wireless, that has the Sony assistant built in so you can talk to your VR headset. And it will also make uh, Julian fries. Yep. I mean, I think this is a good first draft for VR. It's just, yeah. it's just that it's a first draft. So I think we have a lot, a lot more work to go. And I guess, I guess we'll see where we end up. What about AR sort of to round this out? I mean, we've seen such success with Pokemon go. But, um, yeah, that's everyone's like, oh, Pokemon Go proves that AR is like the thing. But like, if you, if you're someone who actually plays Pokemon Go, you turn off AR as one of the first things you do <laughs> because again, you run into an input problem where the game is just yeah. much easier to play if your Pokemon is standing still on a static background than if he's waving all around, <laughs> you know, floating oh, yeah. in the air. It's just it's a lot easier to catch them that way. And like they're making progress with that, where like new AR kit stuff will like stick a Pokemon to the floor and make it not move. But again, that's that's more tech where it's the future is is pretty far away. And like, yeah, I've seen all the kind of concepts with Magic Leap and the Hololens and stuff. And and again, they look cool. But once I've seen her being powered by giant backpacks you wear, and it that, that's <laughs> it's, it's more tech that again seems very cool, but also seems ten years away. <laughs> You literally have to strap yourself into a mech suit, and it's then, pretty close. Then, yeah. Like I saw the, the Magic Leap uh, prototype, and it was it was exactly like that, more or less. You know, I guess like for games where you have to run around with a fake gun and a backpack on, I mean, you might as well just go play paintball guns or you know laser tag or something. It yeah. seems like simpler and and less potentially dangerous than what running around with goggles on your head where you can't hardly see anything and. Yeah. Uh, well, anyways, I guess so. In 2018, not much movement in VR. That's that's my prediction. There's not going to be a whole lot that we see. That we're going to see some new games. We're going to see some uh, new and improved headsets, but nothing major. Nothing that was going to yeah, change I'd be non-believers. If there was some sort of earth-shattering breakthrough. I mean, maybe the Vive Pro will be that. If it's a really awesome wireless headset, that's not crazy expensive, but. Nah. <laughs> even that, even if, even if you get the the tech, then you need the products to match. Which I I still can't even name like the VR game you must play, or I can tell you like fifty console games you should play right now. Well, I think keep talking and nobody. Explodes. That's probably the best one. Yes, <laughs> that's my favorite. That was the first one I played, and that's still my favorite. It's a really great game. You could play it uh, with just two screens just as easily, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, although you know. It works. It works well. It's it's a, it's a very fun game. So if you do have a VR headset and you are looking for a good game for it, I would recommend that one. Um, and then I don't. Yeah, I can't really. That's name it. That's one. that's our only VR yeah, recommendation. So for four or five hundred dollars, super hot. Play. Uh, yeah, super hot's cool, but but difficult. Um, there's some. Yeah, there's some other ones, but there's nothing. There's just nothing that leaps out at me as must have. Yeah. No. All right. Well, thanks for listening, uh, and we'll catch you guys next week. See you. That's it for this episode of World. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Podcast One has new shows on our new app. Check out all the cool features to help you explore our exciting new programming, like America's Lakers podcast with Jay Moore, So Random with Corinne Olympios, Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast, Not Just Sports with Susie Schuster and Rich Eisen, and Sessions with Randy Jackson, as well as your old favorites like The Lady Gang, Steve Austin, Shaquille O'Neal, and Adam Carolla. Get the new Podcast One app in the App Store, Google Play, or PodcastOne.com.
At Farmers Insurance, we know every windshield collision has a unique sound. Beetle. Bird poop. Drone. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.